0: live on the Believe Podcast Network, except it isn't live, because it's a podcast. Welcome in, everybody. It is November 2nd, according to my count, and I hope y'all are having a fantabulous November 2nd, because it's Deadline Dead. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, it is NFL trade deadline day. Can you believe all the ridiculous moves that happened today? It was incredible. Landscape altering in the NFL. Maybe the best trade deadline we've had in years. Or on the other end of the spectrum, wow, I can't believe nobody made any moves at this point. The salary cap must be quite real in the NFL because, man, nobody really did anything to try and improve their team. I can't believe it which is just code for we don't know what happened at the trade deadline yet today, other than Von Miller going from the Denver Broncos to the Los Angeles Rams, which is where I would like to start on this podcast and then continue the conversation with our buddy Razor Rosenthal in the second part of today's show. Uh, Because the Von Miller story is one of those stories that is the top news going into Tuesday, unless something crazier has happened by the time you're listening to this. But Von Miller got traded from the Denver Broncos to the Los Angeles Rams. A second and third round pick in this year's draft are going back to Denver. Denver's going to pay Von Miller's salary, which basically means Denver valued the draft picks, which was probably an overpay given Von Miller's production by the Los Angeles Rams. Um, but they don't value the draft picks the way that they value a cheap middle linebacker, relatively cheap middle linebacker with former All-Pro play and will one day be an NFL Hall of Famer. The Denver Broncos just valued the draft picks in the rebuild and George Patton is going to make his imprint on the franchise and made this comment over on the slump buster like I wouldn't have been surprised if the Broncos just had dual press conferences announcing the Von Miller trade and then firing Vic Fangio right off the bat because we talked about this a little bit in the memes of the weekend pod, when we talked about Washington and Denver, like Denver's four and four, but we know they aren't actually good. And they looked around at the less, the rest of the AFC West and basically just said, all right, it's not our year. Uh, Raiders are probably better than us. We know the chiefs are always better than us and the chargers look pretty good. So it's not our year. We're just going to pack up and go home. Maybe Teddy Bridgewater's contract will expire at the end of the year and we'll get some cap relief there. And, We'll pay down the salary, but we value the draft picks at this point because we're going into a little bit of a rebuild and we want to have double-digit draft picks in order to retool this team. And maybe that means going to get a quarterback or get a top pick in the draft or at least a higher pick in the draft because the Broncos aren't going to probably have a high enough pick to really make a dent at the franchise. It's probably going to be in the same range as last year where they had the nine pick and I think they had the 10 pick one year and they traded down with the Steelers so the Steelers could get Devin Bush. Like it's probably going to be in that like 11 to 15 range again for the Denver Broncos, maybe even a little higher than that, but even still Denver's just accumulating the capital so they can take shots at the board. And people also forget that last week they got Kenny Young from the Rams. Which kind of explains the Von Miller deal a little better now, doesn't it? They got a middle linebacker from the Rams with a a higher salary as a dump, and it was like, yeah, that's a weird move considering Kenny Young was like the second leading tackler on the Rams, and then, you know, come to find out Von Miller's going back to Los Angeles like a week later, it's like, ah, that makes a little bit more sense, and... You know, the Broncos have, I mean, we talked about injuries kind of derailed their season a bit when they started 3-0, and like they lost Josie Jewell, they lost Bradley Chubb, Von Miller obviously missed all of last year with an injury and had a rough bout with COVID too, so all of that played up to the point where Denver kind of looked up and said, we value the draft picks more, which was an interesting choice given that Von Miller's not the player he once was, but it felt like we just went through this a little bit ago with J.J. Watt, right? where you have a cornerstone piece of your franchise. This is someone who's going to have their number retired for that team. They're going to go into the Hall of Fame. And all of the the fans of that team are going to go pour into Canton to celebrate that guy's Hall of Fame ceremony. Like one of these generational type of players famous for that uniform. And I was reading an article on SB Nation summarizing the trade. And one of the things that they put in there that kind of took me back a sec was the best Broncos player since Champ Bailey. And Champ Bailey, I know he just got into the Hall of Fame recently, but Champ Bailey feels like a distant memory for myself because Champ Bailey was when I was a child and I got the back end of his career. And so you didn't really get the prime Champ Bailey where he was like single-handedly carrying the Broncos to a victory over Jake or with Jake Plummer over Tom Brady. But also... I kind of got the back end of Champ Bailey's career and he was a first ballot hall of famer. He went in, I think this year, but it was the 2020 class. So Champ Bailey is one of those names that kind of resonates in the back of my head, but that feels like a long time ago. And I realized like, yeah, Von Miller is that dude. From that 2011 draft class, which always gets brought up whenever JJ Watt moves around or Cam Newton gets cut, is like or Richard Sherman, his career comes to an end, or one of the players from that class retires because the 2011 draft class is maybe the best draft class in any professional sport ever. And every time someone comes from that class, and Von Miller was right at the heart of it, like he could have, should have, would have been the first pick. In that 2011 NFL draft class, Cam Newton was the first pick. Vaughn Miller went second. Marcel Darius was third, but that one, he still made a few Pro Bowls, but when you go down the list of who the Bills could have had, it feels a lot worse because then you had A.J. Green, Hall of Famer, maybe. A.J. Green will probably get in eventually. Patrick Peterson, Hall of Famer, easy. Julio Jones, Hall of Famer, easily. Alden Smith doesn't retire early, maybe Hall of Famer. Uh, Tyron Smith at nine Hall of Famer, JJ Watt, 11 Hall of Famer, Robert Quinn, not quite Hall of Fame, but still really good. Mike Pouncey, Ryan Kerrigan, Cam Jordan. He's going to make the Hall of Fame. Mark Ingram, Cam Hayward. Uh, you can go further down and find Richard Sherman and Rodney Hudson. Justin Houston is down there in the third round somewhere. Uh, I think there's one more fun name in there somewhere. I forgot who it is now, but I think there's, oh, Jason Kelsey. He's going to be a Hall of Famer. That's who it was. Seventh round pick. He'll be a Hall of Famer one day. And so that draft class always gets brought up whenever there's a move like this. And Von Miller was at the heart of it. And this is one of those like generational type players who is Hall of Fame good, but was a Hall of Fame talent. And those players don't usually change teams even at the very back end of their careers, and maybe this is a pivot in modern NFL where teams aren't willing to compromise salary cap space and long-term futures of the team for those players specifically, and you have, of course, cases of players who don't stay with their team all the way through, even like Phillip Rivers at the very end became a cap casualty, and Champ Bailey, who we mentioned before, played for multiple teams, but these are. This is kind of the change in the NFL where maybe the Broncos were doing right by Von Miller, but the Broncos weren't willing to wait around forever with Von Miller making up a significant portion of their cap just for the feel-goods and memories. And maybe it'll work out, maybe it won't. A lot of that's going to have to do with the Broncos' picks themselves. But I just find really interesting when these players happen, the emotional connections to these players because there's been a wide range of responses from Broncos fans and a lot of it feels heartbreaking because it's it's the name itself. It's not necessarily that the trade itself, like it's a it's a fair it's a fairly significant compensation. Like he got slightly more than what Josh Rosen got for the Cardinals, but it's the name itself that draws people in quite a bit that I think is really interesting to follow. Cuz don't get it wrong, like the Rams overpaid for Von Miller, but in the grand scheme of things, two day two picks is like a middle of the road player. Like, this is not a trade that, like, years from now we can go back and reevaluate and say, how did this alter the landscape of the NFL? It's not like the 49ers giving up three first round picks to get Trey Lance or. The trade two deadlines ago, where the Jaguars got two first-round picks for Jalen Ramsey, or the Jamal Adams trade, or the Odell Beckham trade, or Khalil Mack. This isn't a player in their prime being traded. It's more akin to like a Julio Jones type of trade, or like a Sam Darnold type of trade, because you're not trading first-round compensation. Not that the Rams have any first-round compensation, but even still, like, this is a trade that's, like, secondary that might not actually do anything for the Los Angeles Rams. Because, like, we, we spent weeks talking about Julio Jones, and that hasn't done anything at all in terms of changing the landscape of the NFL. The The Titans may be slightly better with Julio Jones, but from a macro level, it doesn't feel like the Titans are much better or much, much worse with or without Julio Jones. Like Julio Jones kind of replicates what Corey Davis did last year at this point in his career. And before that sounds kind of like LOL funny. Go look at Corey Davis's stats from last year. Like he had like 1100 yards and double digit touchdowns. And that's why the Jets gave him all that money to not play when Mike White throws 405 yards. But anyways, back to the Von Miller point. Like from the from a macro level, Von Miller is probably not going to change power dynamics in the AFC or in the NFC playoff picture. Like acqu- acquiring Von Miller does not make the Rams magically better than the Cardinals. They might have been better than the Cardinals before, they might have been worse than the Cardinals before, but Von Miller's not the difference that's flipping those situations either way. Just as JJ Watt is not the player who's shifting the difference for the Arizona Cardinals by being there or not being there. The Cardinals are worse without JJ Watt. But it's not like league-altering injuries if J.J. Watt goes down. The way Derrick Henry getting injured is a league-altering injury by perception. Which, by the way, I do feel like as great as Derrick Henry is and how prevalent that offense is on Derrick Henry, I don't even think this is a an alter, a, a league-altering injury to Derrick Henry because... I, the the Titans might be six and two, but we made the joke on the Instagram yesterday. Like the Titans are probably not going to win more than eleven games, ten games. They're gonna probably be the four seed, and if not the four seed, they're gonna be a three seed. They're gonna play a really good team in the wild card and probably lose. Whether it's the Bengals, the Chargers. Um, whether it's the Cleveland Browns when they get healthy, like they'll probably lose a wild card game to a five or a six seed. I think that's still gonna happen no matter what. even if the Colts have an easier schedule down the stretch and maybe they can close the gap on some of these games. I, I still feel like the Titans, by beating the Colts twice, are in cruise control because I don't think that the Titans are, Two games worse on paper than the Indianapolis Colts, even if you lose Derrick Henry. Anyways, that's my two cents on Derrick Henry. To bring it back to the Von Miller situation, the way Derrick Henry feels like a league-altering move, even in perception, probably not the case with Von Miller. What the story from this for me is, is the personal attachment the Denver Broncos had to Von Miller. And maybe they, they do more moves at the deadline. You may know about this by this point. Maybe this is a longer ploy for the Broncos to start selling off pieces and capitalize on what appears to be a seller's market because there aren't that many sellers at the deadline and the NFL doesn't have a crazy trade deadline spectacular like Major League Baseball has, which we're also going to talk about that with Razor Rosenthal when it comes to the context of baseball's trade deadline in the Atlanta Braves, but I'll save that for later. Football doesn't really have that crazy buyer's move. Like Jalen Ramsey getting traded at the deadline two years ago was like a, wow, this usually never happens type of trade. Mid-season league altering trade usually doesn't happen. And it's not like Jalen Ramsey's trade has been magically league altering. Like the Rams are really good this year. But in the two years since Ramsey got there, they missed the playoffs and they got bounced in the second round. But it does make the Rams a powerhouse. Like The byproduct of having someone as good as Jalen Ramsey and having someone as good as Aaron Donald anchoring your defense means the Rams aren't going to fall into mediocrity. And the interesting part for the Rams too, and we'll we'll get to this in a second because we've talked about the Vaughn Miller side enough and a little bit about the Broncos side enough, but what's interesting from the Rams side is... If you are a person who values draft picks highly relative to everyone else, you're probably going to criticize the Rams' strategy of trading all of their draft picks for short-term players and building a team around like eight stars. I think our buddy Gage Bridgeford called it the stars and duds model, or stars and scrubs, I think it was. Stars and scrubs sounds more right. Stars and scrubs model. And... If you want to criticize the Rams for that, totally fair, but that feels like a lot of playing the results if the Rams don't win because the fun stats being thrown around that the Rams only now have a fifth and two seventh round picks in next year's draft and they will not have a first round pick from 2017 to 2023 unless they start selling off the roster for some reason, but even still, at the very least, Los Angeles is doing something different than anyone else in the NFL. And the way that teams become great is by doing things that are different than everyone else in the NFL because that's at a basic level where victory within the margins are outside of playing luck. If you do things differently than everyone else— You will improve your chances, potentially, to succeed. Now, some people do things differently than everyone else, and that's a bad thing. The Giants, for is a great example, do things differently than everyone else, but not necessarily in a good way. Dave Gettleman makes strange draft picks. They put strange coordinators in place. They change coaches quite oftenly. Those are weird ways to go about it. Another good point around that one is the Raiders. The Raiders would always have draft picks that were like, okay, that's a weird strategy. Nobody's really doing that, but go for it. If you're going to draft Cleland Furl with the fourth pick, who apparently Mike Mayock's trying to trade before the trade deadline, or you're going to draft Alex Leatherwood with the 17 pick, and nobody valued him higher than a first-round grade, but you guys were afraid he wouldn't fall to 47, and you desperately wanted to have Alex Leatherwood. Uh, Another example of this is... The Green Bay Packers drafting Jordan Love. And I keep saying this all the time. Nobody's doing that strategy. Do you know the last quarterback who sat two full seasons before becoming the starter who was drafted in the first round? Sorry, first round quarterback, sat two full seasons before becoming the starter, was Aaron Rodgers. The second one is going to be Jordan Love. So again, nobody is doing that strategy but it doesn't mean you're going to be right. The Packers got it right the first time, but Aaron Rodgers was also a better prospect than Jordan Love. And the thing I say all the time with the Packers is, you better not mess it up. If you're going to do that strategy and you're going to be different than everyone else, you better not mess it up. Because if you do, that is a fireable offense. And this is the part of taking risks, is that if you do things that are different than the status quo, you absorb a certain level of risk. The Rams are absorbing a certain level of risk, even though Sean McVay and I forgot the name of the GM and Stan Kroenke as the owner is probably in a good position to take that risk or at least safer than most other teams because Sean McVay is a desired commodity in the NFL. There's no jeopardy of Sean McVay losing his job and not finding another piece. He has really great job security. I think Sean McVay, outside of, Andy Reid and Bill Belichick and Mike Tomlin and maybe maybe another coach in there like John not even John Harbaugh has the job security that Sean McVay has. So Sean McVay is one of the, is in one of the best positions to take a risk like this. And the GM, who's I think it's Les Snead now that I think about it, Les Snead and Sean McVay are in a great position to take that risk. But when you take Chances like that and do things differently than everyone else, you absorb a certain level of risk because if it doesn't work out and you're doing things differently than everyone else, that becomes a fireable offense in a results driven business, which is why a lot of people like the Minnesota Vikings, who I crap on all the time for doing this, are content to just stay right in the middle and do just well enough to protect their jobs. This is the same thing that happens when teams tear down the franchise. The Lions did it last year. The Dolphins tried doing it the year before when they traded Tunsil and traded Minka Fitzpatrick. You absorb a certain level of risk, and that risk is coming back to bite Brian Flores now and may down the road come back to bite Dan Campbell and Brad Holmes, who are running the Detroit Lions. Is When you tear down a franchise, you absorb a certain level of risk. And when you do things differently than anyone else, in whatever context it is, you absorb a certain level of risk. And so I think it's great that the Los Angeles Rams are trading all of their draft picks and pushing the salary cap to its limits and having the Broncos absorb contract money in exchange for like giving up better draft compensation. If other teams are going to value draft compensation more than you will, maybe you can get a player at a decreased value For what that team is asking for. Maybe that's the case. Would I have given up a second and a third for Von Miller and not have to pay his contract? Maybe. Like, Von Miller has not been that player so far this year, but teams make these calculated risks all the time of like the upside is that this older player could return to a form that we remember that dominates and changes the game. I don't think that's going to happen with Vaughn Miller. I don't think this move is necessarily like in football terms, worthy of 20 minutes of content, 18. We talked for two minutes about Derrick Henry, but even still, I think the the case for the Rams at this point is I'm glad they're doing things differently. Cause don't you want to find out if it works? Don't you want to find out if everyone is overvaluing draft picks and this would be a way to exploit a market inefficiency Don't you want to find out if having eight stars pushing up against the salary cap with replaceable players who actually get better because they're playing across from Jalen Ramsey or next to Aaron Donald or side-by-side with Von Miller if Von Miller returns to some kind of form that we remember Von Miller being? Don't you at least want to find out if it's something that works? Or, by the way, if your wide receivers get better when you have Matthew Stafford throwing the ball instead of Jared Goff throwing the ball, where now Cooper Cup is leading the league in receiving yards and is one of the elite weapons in the NFL and the number one fantasy football wide receiver right now. Like, don't you want to know if that's going to work? I'm just glad that a team is willing to try it. I'm just glad that we're going to get to see something different than anything we've seen before in roster construction. We've seen stars and scrubs model, but not in a case where the Rams are literally sacrificing every single pick in their upcoming draft class. They gave up a sixth for Sony Michelle, fourth in the Brandon Cooks trade. I think they got a second rounder back in that deal, but they used it last year. They got the second and third going out for Von Miller, and they sent out the first for Matthew Stafford. So don't you want to see if it's going to work out? Like, if, you, if this model of draft picks are not as valuable as people think they are, which I think there's a real merit to. Like, we talk all the time about the value of first-round picks. And like, would you trade a first-round pick for Roquan Smith? Would you trade a first-round pick for Bradley Chubb? Would you trade a first-round pick for X, Y, or Z wide receiver? Adam Thielen, let's say. Would you trade a first-round pick for Zeke Elliott right now? We talk about this all the time, but then, case in point, the Baltimore Ravens, hold on to their first round pick, that first round pick becomes Rashad Bateman. And all of a sudden that first round pick doesn't hold the same value it used to. So if we're overvaluing first round picks relative to what they're worth, because what they really are is like a 50% chance of landing a star, then wouldn't it be better to let someone else play the game and you take the proven commodity? And of course the risk is that the proven commodity won't be the proven commodity, but is that a larger risk? then trying to play the crapshoot of the NFL draft. Maybe that's true. Maybe it's not. I point to the Dolphins who just, get, you know, had all these draft picks. Five first-round picks for Laramie Tunsil. They got the three from the 49ers, the one they got from the Texans last year in 2020, and a second-round pick that was like pick 35 that was essentially a late first-round pick. They they basically got five first-round picks for Laramie Tunsil. And they spent two of them on Jalen Waddell. Because remember, they traded from 3 to 12 and then traded their first round pick, which looks like it's going to be really high in the draft, and the number 12 pick to the Eagles for the number 6 pick and took Jalen Waddell. No way Jalen Waddle's worth two first-round picks. We spent last week, and that was a little tiresome podcast, but we spent last week talking about how would you get a first-round pick back for Justin Fields, but now you watch Justin Fields have that one magical play, and you're like, okay, we're willing to ride this out and maybe ruin years of our franchise trying to put him in a position to succeed when we don't have the money, don't have the draft picks, and don't have the capital to go get players. But maybe a different innovative strategy could exploit a market inefficiency. I don't know what that would be for the Bears, but I can see what that is for the Rams, which is let's maximize the window while we have the chance. We're always going to replenish more draft picks. They're always going to hold some kind of value. And from there, we can try and build the best possible team built on like seven or eight really, really good stars And that will then elevate the rest of the roster at least a little bit. Like, it doesn't have to transform Leonard Floyd or Dante Fowler into star edge rushers. But it does make it so those players hold value relative to what the market is saying they are. Because if a player's worth $5 million, but they're put next to Aaron Donald, and now they're worth $9 million then we're saving $4 million by virtue of having that guy next to Aaron Donald. It's like one of the ways you can exploit market inefficiencies is just by having Aaron Donald in the center of your defense or having Jalen Ramsey as a lockdown corner or having Von Miller in the middle of your defense playing middle linebacker. So all of those things are ways that the Rams are trying to navigate the cap under the situation they have, and I'm just fascinated by that they're willing to take the chance. I think it's a great move, and I'm really interested to see what our buddy Blake Jude has because he's been the guy who, who really values draft picks. Like it, He finds it strange that they gave up so much for Jared Goff or there's uh, Jamal Adams' trade for two first-round picks was a, not a great move by the Seahawks. I find it interesting because I think it's a great move by the Rams because I want to see them try. No one has done it as aggressively as the Rams have, where they've just discarded draft picks in exchange for proven commodities, old or not. But they've found interesting ways to navigate the cap and using people's valuations of draft picks as a way to do that. And I'm really interested to see if it succeeds. Because the returns already are really good. I'm just interested to see how far they can take this. So, with that being said, let us roll along here with Our friend Razor Rosenthal here on the Take It Easy podcast. Make sure to check out Razor on Beer Life Sports as well. There's a link to that and his personal Instagram uh, in the description to today's episode. Because we got Game 6 of the World Series tonight. So uh, let's roll along in with our good friend Razor Rosenthal uh, and his gambling expertise. But also we kind of just dabble in baseball conversation before a really, really fun Game 6 of the World Series what are you feeling for monday night football tonight
1: oh boy uh
0: (laughs) (laughs) oh this should be interesting
1: well kansas city has let me down so much that it's a no play kyle first of all it's a no play let me just throw that out there um don't love kansas city's value in the money line it's too expensive number I think the Giants are are bad, Uh, but they find ways to beat teams such as the Carolina Panthers and the New Orleans Saints that aren't too bad. Uh, You know, it's a small lean on the Giants plus the 10, but I don't even I don't like the game. I don't like what I'm I don't like what I'm seeing out of Kansas City. I hate the fact that their defense is so bad that a team like New York has the capability of covering and winning straight up. So we're going to pass on the game
0: even with no Saquon Barkley and no Kenny Galladay and no literally anybody at this point, I saw a number 13 running around for the giants the other day at wide receiver and it gave me Odell Beckham flashbacks. And I found out it was Dante Pettis. And that made me impossibly sad. Um,
1: Even with all of that, the giants still have a chance to cover. Yeah, they do. I I think, I think Dante Pettis, um, myself, my grandmother, your uncle, can all score on the Kansas City Chiefs. Um, it's just <laughs> the way things are going with that organization and that defense. It's actually quite pathetic.
0: Should the Kansas City Chiefs just start having open tryouts at this point? Because there's, uh, there's some free agents available. I don't know if they've played football in a few years, but there's some people out there who could maybe play better than the Chiefs defense, especially in the secondary.
1: Probably should have gone after Von Miller today, huh? I mean, I mean, for for God's sake, that's a great pickup for the Rams. And Kansas City needs anything, anything on defense to lift a spark because it's just not there. Uh, it's
0: interesting how the day before the trade deadline, which people will hear this on deadline day, um, is when all the catastrophic injuries happen. So now teams who thought they had playoff chances have to reevaluate now where the Saints are like, do we trade for a backup quarterback? And the Rams get Von Miller, obviously, and the Titans are connected to Melvin Gordon, and then they sign uh, Adrian Peterson. And it's like, okay, this is when all the chaos can set in. Everyone has to make a decision in two days of whether or not they're going to make a move or not.
1: Yeah, tough times for Tennessee. That team is ascending in the right direction. Huge wins over Buffalo, Kansas City, and Indianapolis pretty big setback there with Henry but uh, yeah I, I don't see how this team can matriculate into a one or two seed after that loss that's that's their whole offense that's what they do when they're up by three or four run the ball to Henry for the end you know the last 1520 minutes of the game and you just lost that so tough break for fans in Nashville
0: what about the Von Miller trade? What did you make of that situation?
1: I think you made a great team, really, really great. Uh, and I think that just shows Denver is pretty much calling it a day. I think the Broncos realize that they have uh, hopefully a future down the road, but this year sitting at 4-4, four and four, Vegas, LAC, all these teams ahead of them and, and just alone in that AFC West, just too much to overcome for Denver. Von Miller, a lot of injuries, probably a great, probably a good trade for both teams, I think.
0: Yeah, and Denver's interesting because they're obviously four and four, but we all know that they're not, they're four and four, but we know they're not very good and they have a new GM, which I think this kind of like precludes all of this is that the new GM was always going to pick the new coach. Like I, I said, you could have just fired Vic Fangio after trading Von Miller. You, you could have, held a simultaneous press conference announcing Vic Fangio would no longer be the coach and that Von Miller had been traded. Because George Patton, I think that's his name, George Patton is going to kind of put his thumbprint on the franchise at this point. And I don't know if they have any player on the roster other than maybe Bradley Chubb that's worth a first-round pick, but they're going to just accumulate these day-two and day-three picks. And maybe, just maybe, some of them will turn into star players. But yeah, Broncos looked up, they're like, we're pretty clearly four slice in this division. We're cool. We're good. We got four wins on the season. We'll walk away at this point.
1: Yeah, could be a great move. Could be huge for the Rams to, you know, solidify themselves in the NFC. And hopefully, if you're a Broncos fan, there's a brighter future.
0: Yeah, and Broncos fans, you kind of want this. And I've been, I've been dumping on Broncos fans for a long time because they're one of these perpetually mediocre franchises now. Ever since that. If you take out that like four year Peyton Manning run, like the Broncos have been really bad for 20 plus years. Going back to when they won the Super Bowl in the 1990s, 98 I think was the last Super Bowl for them. But if you take out those four Peyton Manning years, like it's been a lot of bad for the Denver Broncos, especially the last 6 years where they've had 13 different quarterbacks and never have had a team that won more than 8 games. So This could be the beginning of something better Denver (laughs) like it might be a couple years you might have to lose a bunch of games here but as long as it gets you out of the purgatories of case Keenum's and Joe Flacco's and uh, drew locks and now I guess Teddy Bridgewater which Teddy Bridgewater has been fine this year it's not like he's been awful he's been an above average version of Teddy Bridgewater. (laughs)
1: yeah the bronco- yeah the Broncos uh haven't made the playoffs since winning the Super Bowl in two thousand and fifteen. I think my best memory in recent passes is Tim Tebow versus uh Pittsburgh winning that game uh and other than that i mean that that's a long. that's going back a long time ago. I believe it was uh did they win that game or who? Yeah. who they did win that the, game. Yeah, the,
0: so the Tim Tebow season is something that's interesting because they would win all these weird games like seventeen to thirteen. But yeah, yeah, yeah that that eighty yard touchdown was the game winner against Pittsburgh. That was two
1: thousand eleven, perhaps, and they beat they beat the Steelers. Then they lost uh, probably the Patriots right after that. And yep, but that they they correct. had they had a pretty good run there, like you said. The uh, the Manning years of uh, twelve to fifteen were really solid. And just a disaster ever since. So, yep, Broncos Uh, possibly made a good trade here today.
0: Yes, and then there's, of course, I-, I was reading or audiobooking Seth Wickersham's new book about the Patriots, and I was reminded that Tom Brady's first ever playoff loss was against Jake Plummer's Broncos. Wow. And I found that to be incredibly funny. I'm like... That's right. There was that one weird year the Broncos made the AFC championship. I was too young to remember it, but I was like, that's right. Like Champ Bailey single-handedly took the Broncos to the to the AFC championship with Jake Plummer at quarterback. But other than that, it's been pretty much bad for the Denver Broncos, which to be fair is not terrible by AFC standards. If you have like five division titles, a super bowl, another super bowl appearance, like in the grand scheme of things, it's not that bad. It's just when things do go bad for the Broncos, they can go bad for a long time.
1: Tell me about it as a Buffalo Bills fan. So, I don't have <laughs> I don't have uh, too much sympathy for the folks in Colorado.
0: Yeah, Denver, it's the AFC has been so dominated by like four teams for 20 years that you have like the the Bengals haven't won a playoff game and they're technically like the seventh best out of uh, like 16 franchises across the last 20 years because they just haven't been terrible like the Bills, Jaguars, Dolphins, Jets, except for those two years. It's it's incredible. The Broncos haven't been great. Raiders have been just god awful. Like there's not a lot of greatness coming out of the AFC until this year where
1: no one knows who's good and who's not in the AFC. <laughs> You got it. Well, it's uh, sunny time. We are here in November. A lot going on. World Series. Exciting last night, huh? I really wanted to
0: ask you about the World Series because we have an off day at the day we're recording, which means by the time people are listening to this, we have game six tonight. I've been so fascinated by this series because it, it feels unexplainable until you look at it, and then it is super explainable, which is just the Astros are built on their lineup. And when the lineup works, they win, and when it doesn't, they lose. And now they find themselves – they I mean, they were against the brink yesterday, but now they find themselves going back to Houston and got to win both, I guess, at this point, which is maybe the position they want to be in, but – or I'm sorry, maybe not the position they want to be in, but also they can beat the Braves twice because the Astros are probably a better team than the Braves.
1: They, are, you know what? They, but yeah, I, before this playoffs started, the Astros were much better than the Braves. But the Astros have found themselves in a lot of holes with their with their seven, eight, nine hitters. When of course they're an American League ballpark, uh, Maldonado's actually come up pretty big. They moved Bregman to seven, which I thought was actually a brilliant move just to change up that scenario because Bregman really struggling in the fourth hole. I, I think that the play here, Kyle. Here, here's what I'm going to do with the World Series. Is I'm going to take the Braves to win the World Series right now at a, at a price tag of -220. Okay, so you're going to lay you're going to lay a pretty hefty price. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to take the Astros tomorrow. I like the Astros tomorrow. And and if the Astros don't win tomorrow, that's okay cuz that means you're going to win the series bet with Atlanta. So don't put a ton of liability on this game. This is an even money game tomorrow between the Astros and the Braves. Uh, I, I just I, the Braves have magic. We've seen this in baseball more than any other sport. When a team has magic in the postseason, it, the magic just continues on and on and on. And they also just have the better staff. Game six and seven ready to go. So you know, I don't trust any of these Astros starting pitchers. I trust none of them. They they can give you. Absolutely nothing. I mean, look at last night. I mean, the the Braves are up 4-0. It shows you how good the the Astros hitting is went on, but I don't have a ton of confidence in in a two-game sample set between the Astros and the Braves right now, but I've been wrong. I've been wrong a lot in these playoffs, but here's my safe bet. Houston money line tomorrow, uh, Braves to win one out of these two-game series bet. So
0: in the case of the Astros, I find it interesting because – Game six, I I think the rookie's going to start, right? Um, What is it, Garcia, I think his name is. The guy who closed out the ALCS, I think he's going to start for Houston. But then after the starters did get crushed a little bit, it ended up turning around a little bit because the Braves only scored one more run the rest of the game. And it was obviously Udikidi coming in and Maton and just going to the bullpen, which is kind of keeping them alive. But the Astros – the Astros pitching staff feels kind of like what we thought, where sometimes they're going to be good, sometimes they're not, because they're names that we respect, like Valdez and Ordechidi and, uh, well, Zach Granke. <laughs> even Zach Granke throwing five shutout innings was kind of weird, but even still in the past, if that had been a thing, I think we wouldn't have batted an eye at it. It's just Granke's been bad recently. So I feel like they do just enough pitching where the offense needs to generate runs. And I know – it we talked about this on Sunday on the podcast where if Dusty moves around the lineup, which he did, he put Bregman in the seven slot for game five and then moved Correa up to three. Even if you do that, it's the only way they're going to be able to win the series is if Correa and Bregman hit because moving it around just means you can manufacture runs because those guys aren't playing well, but being able to manufacture runs kind of just means you're a bad offense instead of an all-time bad offense in by playoff standards. And so yesterday Correa and, what? Uh, sorry, Correa and Bregman both came through. They had RBIs and big base hits. I think Correa had like three hits or something in the game. So those guys coming up, I feel like is going to be fine for the Astros and it's the reason why I thought they were going to win the series in the beginning, but I also know that baseball's weird, so they can be beat by the Braves on any given day, as we saw in Games 1 and Games 3, where the Braves just kind of kicked their ass.
1: Yeah, isn't it interesting how you can change everything up by taking two guys, and I said Bregman uh, in the fourth, he's been batting third, but you, you put Bregman at seven, you put Carrera at three, and maybe their perspective changes when Carrera, who's like, listen, I need some confidence. I need to see Altuve in front of me. I need to see Brantley in front of me, and I don't want to see potentially Kyle Tucker, who's one of the hottest hitters. Who knows what? What I mean, Tucker behind me. But it's just interesting dynamic. You know, it worked out really well for for Dusty Baker. Let me give you an interesting stat that uh, that is fascinating about this World Series. It's historic. Four out of five games, Kyle, there has been a run in the first inning. So from a betting standpoint, that has never happened. It's a, it's a prop bet that is the probably the number one prop bet that most gamblers bet, and that's a run scored in the first inning, yes or no. No is heavily juiced. So typically the no is about minus 170 to minus 200. In this case, it's, it's even money. And, and the books are just, I mean, people are just pounding the yes. And four out of five games. There have been runs in the first inning. But here's even something that's more fascinating, Kyle. Three out of the four games that that a run has been scored, it has been with two outs. So really frustrating if you're betting no runs first inning. So take a look at that. See what the line is for game six tomorrow. If it's heavily juiced to the uh, no, maybe you take yet another stab at the yes because it seems like these starting pitchers, especially for the Astros, are struggling early on. So I'm leaning at a possible small play on yes a run in the first inning as well. Do you
0: think that this is one of those things where these teams are just scoring a lot of runs or is it just a weird statistical anomaly where it's like, it's just a weird probability that that would come true in the world series? Cause if that's the case, then I feel like I would hammer no in the other direction.
1: Yeah, it could be an anomaly, but I tell you, I really just think that it's, it's the Astros are the one that are providing this liability. Uh, they're the ones that are really struggling with, with starting pitching, starting with the top of the lineup for the Atlanta Braves, Atlanta, and, they're, and, they're, and, and they find themselves, it seems like, in the top of the first or bottom of the first. just depends on where they're at. The Braves are getting into positions to walk a lot, and I'd like to know the stat on the uh, first-inning walks that the Braves have generated, but it seems like these starting pitchers for the Astros in the first inning find themselves – at a full count nearly every time. That's a ton of pressure. So once we get base runners on, it's, it, you're in trouble when you bet the no. And you get some guys with speed that can steal, that makes it even more troublesome because you just keep moving batters over. And the time that you get to, to two outs, you know, you definitely at this point have somebody on third. The scary part is to have somebody on third with one out because the sack fly is such an easy play in most of these situations. But um, I haven't seen the numbers yet. Again, fascinating. Four out of five games to the yes. he's run in the first inning, and that pays out quite well. I'll, I'll
0: go back to where we were before. Do you know what Carlos Correa's career OPS is in the playoffs? I have no idea. Go ahead. Give me the number. I don't want to look foolish. So, Carlos Correa has an 884 career OPS. Okay. Do you know what do you know what his regular season career OPS is?
1: Uh let's let's throw out a number of five seventy nine. I'm just throwing I'm just throwing stuff out.
0: It is exactly eight eighty four for Carlos okay. Correa. Wow. He has the exact same regular season and postseason OPS for his career. Okay. So wow. this one feels like Carlos Correa was just in a slump when he was, you know, I think it was like one for eighteen or two for eighteen or something to start the World Series and he had an O for game against Boston. Yep. Bregman, on the other hand, Bregman's career batting average, which is not the most super reliable stat, but it's telling in this one, his career batting average is two eighty-two. And when Bregman gets to the playoffs, his career batting average is two twenty-one. So Bregman has who's played like eighty playoff games now in his career. Gets significantly worse when he gets to the playoffs, which is I found interesting because if that's the case, I love the move Dusty Baker made to move Carlos up in the lineup, move Bregman down, and then boom, they put together nine runs and everyone's hitting. And that might be more important when they play a real starting pitcher because obviously this was supposed to be Morton's spot, which by the way, Charlie Morton going a full inning on a broken leg and then being ruled out like. 30 minutes later with a broken leg is pretty remarkable. Um, but game five, they kind of just like had to throw things together. Do you feel good about the Braves starting pitching with Freed and Anderson being game six and seven that one four cut up Yeah,
1: 100% believe there's a massive advantage here with Freed and Anderson. Again, that's why the series price tag is as high as minus 225. Depends on where you shop. So uh, I believe one out of these two, pitchers will win and I also think the Braves are in a good position to just kind of you know navigate through six or seven innings with these guys I'm not saying that's going to happen but the Astros have really probably seems like no chance or path to do that so they're going to really have their bullpen saved for game seven if necessary huge advantage for the Braves and the Braves are still hitting I mean listen last night went a little bit cold innings five through nine but I mean, they still scored five runs. If you would have told me the Braves would score five runs last night, be up four-zero, I think I would have bet the house on the Braves. Give me that option because I would have lost. But uh, yeah, I like the Braves here. I mean, I I never like the Braves in any of these series. I like the Brewers. I love the Dodgers, and I and I leaned a little bit towards the Astros. But I, I I'm on the I'm chopping here. I'm gonna go ahead and chop here with the Braves and. And uh, I'm going Braves in six and if not seven, uh, they're going to get it done.
0: The Braves are an interesting thought experiment for me on just the macro level. Cause I remember going back to the trade deadline. This was like the biggest buyer's market for hitters that we can remember because you had the nationals tearing everything down. You had the Cubs tearing everything down. The Marlins were making moves. Uh, a bunch of teams were just dumping everybody they could at the very end. And, the Marlins, I mean, the Braves lost Acuna and are still now one game from winning the World Series. And that feels like just from a macro level of if you you can totally reconstruct a team in one trade deadline. And I don't know if that's ever been something that we I've seen, at least in recent years, going back to like the champion Cubs and the champion Astros and the champion Red Sox and Nationals and. Dodgers and Tampa Bay and some of these Yankees teams that have gotten close, but no cigar. Like I, I don't remember a team being totally reconstructed in that way on offense where half their lineup is deadline acquisitions and they're all making huge impacts with Soler hitting a Homer on the third pitch of the world series and Rosario hitting over 400 in the playoffs and Duval hitting grand slams. Like if an entire lineup in one trade deadline, and I don't know if that'll continue year over year, but it seems like we're learning something new about roster construction in baseball.
1: That's amazing stat. Adam Duvall, I think, you know, being the the most interesting Piece of this puzzle. Former Brave, in you know, in Miami for my Miami Marlins. By the way, I'm a Miami Marlins fan. For those that don't know, um, really? and yeah, That's interesting. I am, I am, and they're they're a bad team. So you know, it's uh, <laughs> it's a lot of my teams are bad. Uh, but you know, I think uh, I think this is this is destiny. This is this is like we've seen before in in baseball in the playoffs. These these teams find ways to win. You know, it's just you get hot, and it just keeps on coming. So, uh, yeah, excited for tomorrow night, and I think the Braves are going to win the World Series. I'll tell you what, this city deserves it. This city's gone through a lot of pain with their professional sports teams. And uh, the Braves have, uh, if if I'm correct, the Braves are the last team in Atlanta to win anything, right? I mean, you can even throw in the Georgia Bulldogs, who are obviously a huge part of the Atlanta area being in Athens right down the road. They haven't won anything You know, I mean, nobody wins anything in that part of of the state of of in in the state of Georgia. So uh, I think the Braves are are in in a prime position here to take it all.
0: Yeah, I'm going back. Hawks haven't done anything of note in the last 20, 30 years. Uh, Falcons, obviously, we know what happened there. Two Super Bowl losses. Braves have been one of those cream of the crop franchises in baseball that just always ended up. I mean. They did win the one championship, but given how much winning they did, it feels kind of weird because they should have probably won more. Like, yeah, I think Atlanta's probably got that kind of tortured sports history, but also the tortured kind where you get close and not like my San Diego sports curse where you just never are allowed to be good at all. Uh, this is a this is a different kind of sports curse that plagues the Braves and good on them for breaking it. I said when Acuna went down that this run was over that When they were up 3-1 on the Dodgers last year, that was the best chance they were going to have to win a championship. And I was wrong. I was wrong about the Atlanta Braves. And it's kind of cool to see it work out for them the way it has.
1: It has been. And I've been wrong a lot this this playoff series. So my apologies to anyone who's taking my action, listening on your wonderful podcast. And of course, at Beer Life Sports, we've uh, we've struggled with this MLB playoffs, but we are uh, we're persevering. We're moving on. Isn't that playoff
0: baseball, though? Like, it's just so – it can be so, like, obvious sometimes where it's always the Astros, the the Red Sox, the Yankees, the Braves, the Dodgers. They always end up being the final four teams, at least for the last, like, four years since the Cubs kind of fell apart and when Cleveland kind of fell apart. Like, it's kind of been the same teams, but also just chaos kind of breaks out in the middle of it where – Eddie Rosario is a playoff hero and Jorge Soler might win world series MVP and weird things like that happen in baseball's play. Like Steve Pierce won world series MVP three years ago. <laughs> like weird things of the nationals won a world series when they probably should have lost the Wild Card game because Trent Grisham booted a ball in right field. Like baseball's that weird way where it's so ridiculously unpredictable, but also sometimes can be the most predictable thing in the world. Like last year with Randy Arozarena, where Tampa Bay was technically the one seed and yet still they felt like a gigantic underdog through that entire playoff run cuz baseball's just weird and hard to figure out.
1: It is. And I would say that, you know, my predictions in the playoffs haven't been bad for the exception of really fading the Braves. I have I have gone against the Braves in a, a lot of key spots and it's probably it's definitely hurt my units here. Uh, you know, but I've, uh, I've been, I was on the Astros to, uh, to get through the White Sox, which I think pretty much everybody was. I, uh, I definitely love the Dodgers over the Giants that, that got scary, but these Braves are resilient and, uh, when baseball's over we're going to miss it, it's been a fun, it's been a fun playoffs.
0: Yeah. I remember in the ALCS, he started off Astros. Then when it was two, one, you went way on the Boston Red Sox uh, I did. train and, and this is the thing that I struggle with during like middle of series is like, if you pivot in the middle of series, it's just more ways for you to be wrong a lot of times because it's so hard to predict trends because they can flip on a dime. Like we saw at the Astros where they had what, like nine runs in the first three games of the series and then dropped nine runs in game five. Like it, these things change so quickly that sometimes it's hard to stay set, especially in seven game series and, basketball and baseball specifically because those series just go on for such a long time
1: yeah yeah you're right you you really can't pivot i think you made a good point there red sox astros uh, series is definitely a great example of that where you know you you have an investment into houston then you start pivoting and then all your investments you're really just throwing it away so uh good 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 uh, nugget there by our host. you know stay the course especially in this playoff baseball platform that we have Yeah.
0: Do you have anything interesting on college football going out of the weekend or into next week or anything that has piqued your interest other than, you know, the Michigan State-Michigan game being awesome and, I don't know, Pitt losing? Like, it wasn't that crazy of a college football chaos weekend, but anything you got interesting?
1: Well, let's say, let's say, our you know, let's give our praise to Michigan-Michigan State. That was the best game of the year. Uh, I was on the Michigan money line, just heartbreak city for me can't even uh can't even look back at that game and just say, "How does that happen? Oh yeah, there's a coach on the sideline in Ann Arbor that continuously loses big games and big spots so let's thank let's thank Jim once again. Uh, a lot of bad calls there, not all his fault. I'll give him that, but you know Michigan Michigan State was a hell of a game. How about the Wisconsin Badgers coming in? As a favorite, Vegas just cashing tickets, uh, or excuse me, many lost tickets there with Iowa money coming in at plus three. The Wisconsin Badgers are. Probably the hardest team to handicap. Figure them out. I was on Wisconsin money line there. I'll give myself a little credit there. Uh, the I think the most uh, the the biggest story in the gambling world this whole weekend, Kyle, is Clemson Florida State. I'm sure you saw the ending there. Uh, that was a huge win for Vegas because most tickets had the Noles at plus nine or nine and a half. And a lot of tickets had the under. So what's fascinating about that, Kyle, is that that affected both the side and the total. That rarely happens. So it went over the total, and Clemson covers the number on that Ridiculous play by the Florida State Seminoles. I mean that that's just it's unacceptable. It's unacceptable. If you have Florida State, you should have won that game. I had the Clemson money line, so that 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 had nothing to do with it. That that's why I bet a lot of money lines, Kyle, because I I hate these shenanigans that happen at the end. Uh, they happen more than you think, and a lot of people had Oh, I'm well animals.
0: aware because in our pickem pool I had the Rams 16 and a half this
1: week. There you go. Another <laughs> another terrible beat, uh, unacceptable by Los Angeles to just continue to give up points like that in the fourth quarter. So, you know, just situations like that 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 that's heartbreaking. I mean, there there's somebody out there that that put their mortgage on the line on the Florida State Seminoles. and, and I know you want to bet responsibly, but that's a good bet. Florida State should have won that game. Not only should they uh, cover nine and a half, they are a better team than, than Clemson. As bad as, as as bad as that is, and as as crazy as that sounds, uh, Clemson's terrible. And uh, I you know I, I I'm lucky luckily got away with that win, but tough loss, tough loss for the Seminole betters. Uh, it's just unacceptable. Uh, is Clemson
0: terrible or is Clemson mediocre? Because I feel like Clemson's like eight win good this year. But that's super disappointing given how good they've been the last six years.
1: I think they're terrible. I, I really do. I mean, they have no offense. Defense is – I would give them a, a grade of maybe a B minus, uh, C plus at the worst. Their their offense for the ACC, even for the ACC, Kyle, I'm going to grade them at about a D. They're terrible. They, they cannot move the ball. They, they have no weapons, which doesn't make sense. But it all starts with quarterback play. And, you know, their, their quarterback is, is is very average, not, not as mobile as – what we've seen in recent past out of Clemson. So uh, the scheme, the scheme has to change. And hopefully uh, if you're a Clemson fan, Dabo is going to figure that out. But uh, yeah, Pittsburgh losing to Miami, really shocking Miami. Manny Diaz, once again, finding a way to, to win and save his job, perhaps. Two good wins for the Miami Hurricanes, beating NC State at home, who was the Atlantic leader at the time. Coastal leader, Pitt Panthers, now under a little bit of pressure, losing to Miami, so... Uh, surprise, surprise, Manny Diaz wins two games that, that may keep his job. But, yeah, you know, Kyle, I don't, I'm not enjoying college football very much because here's what's going to happen when we talk around uh, Christmas as we get close to the playoffs. It's, I told you this two weeks ago on your show. It's going to be Ohio State. They're going to win every game. They're going to find themselves in the playoffs. It's going to be Alabama. They're going to find themselves in the playoffs. And it's probably going to be Oklahoma. It is the same gift that keeps on giving. So, nothing wrong with that, but is, is there, am I excited to see Oklahoma versus Alabama again and again? No, I'm not. And, you know, am I going to bet the game? Sure, we're going to bet the game. But it's just one of those things where with the NFL, you get some surprises. And let, uh, before, I, before I go here, let me just say this. Since, this is why I think Cincinnati's going nowhere, is because their coach sucks and they made some pretty bad decisions at the end of that game. They played casual, and they deserve what they got. And that was one of the worst beats if you had Cincinnati on the money line or Survivor, just completely unacceptable at the end.
0: The Cincinnati Bearcats you're talking about? No, correct, i
1: I shifted gears. I apologize. <laughs> I shifted gears to the NFL with 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 the Cincinnati Bengals. I apologize. I kind of. I I,
0: yeah, I was gonna yeah. say you could both of those could technically be correct. You yeah. can talk about Cincinnati almost losing at halftime to Tulane, but yeah. Also. The Cincinnati Bengals losing to the Jets. Yeah, well, let's talk
1: about the Bearcats. I, I think they're a fugazi. If you don't know what a fugazi is, watch Donny Brasco. I, I think that the Bearcats have no business in this playoff. They, they're, they're not going to touch Alabama, Georgia, Ohio State, Oklahoma. They just don't, they don't have the offense to keep up. Tulane, Navy, these teams are threats for Cincinnati. That's just not going to cut it. So, um, But Cincinnati, the Bengals unacceptable yesterday playing sleepwalking through that end of that game and letting that happen is unacceptable and if you had them on the money line or survivor rough morning rough morning here
0: big thanks to our friend razor rosenthal he nailed it on the chiefs and giants game he got the money line correct but stayed away nice job on his part um, wanted to finish off the pod today for those of you who are the loyalist of listeners that stick through all the way here Um, Because I don't know whether it was because I put a PSA out on the memes of the weekend and the NFL Monday pod, but uh, because it was a new month, our statistics reset on Believe. And so you guys came through with our first ever thousand download day on the podcast. And that just made me feel really good. But also with those thousand downloads, we officially eclipsed in the two, close to two and a half year history of the podcast 755 episodes we have hit 100,000 downloads in the history of Take It Easy and so I want to say thank you to each and every one of you because that feels so cool to hit that benchmark. Um, It's amazing that we're even talking about 100,000 downloads on a podcast especially when we first started that there was only a couple you know dozen on the podcast and so Um, I wanted to say thank you to each and every one of you and I love you so much for all the support you've given to this podcast. God damn, I'm choked up right now. I didn't think that was going to happen, but um, in the history of the podcast, we have hit 100,000 downloads now. If you go back to the 87,000 that we had over on Anchor and then here in the last just under three months, we've got 13,000 more here on Believe. So, Thank you to everyone who has supported us through and through all of this, um, 700 plus episodes. It's, I mean, we talked about it a little bit when we went out to Sacramento, like y'all are helping fund these dreams and making it a little bit easier for me. Um, I thank you so much to everyone who's continued to support the podcast throughout the years and through our transitions and through our different phases and all the people who follow on Instagram, because, it's a super duper cool accomplishment and uh i'm just so damn appreciative of everything that y'all have done for us and i don't again i don't know whether it was because we asked y'all to download by the way let's see if we can do another thousand download day i'm not keeping my hopes up on that one but if y'all can hit a thousand downloads in a day like (laughs) anything is anything is becoming possible at this point so thank you to everyone for supporting us um I I love each and every one of you again Um, to the first hundred thousand next goal, 200,000. Maybe we'll do it in faster than 758 episodes or 755 episodes plus uh, two and a half years of work and effort going into it. So with that being said, ladies and gentlemen, take it easy. We'll talk to you again tomorrow. Love you. Have a great rest of your day.